This week is our final week in what has been our summer series that we've called Bad Advice. At some point, I think we're going to circle back around to it as the response to this series has been pretty positive, and I've, I've really enjoyed working through some of these sayings that are part of Western Christianity's culture. Many of the Christian quips that we've looked at these past five weeks have been a bit more than just bad advice, right? Like some of them have been just flat out untrue or misrepresentations of Scripture. But the piece of bad advice that we look at today falls directly under the column of actual bad advice. We've all heard this one at some point in time. Some of us have, have probably followed it during different stages of life. It's, it's quite prevalent in our modern culture, especially with how many of our churches have live streams these days. The piece of bad advice that we're looking at this morning states, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, I know we've all heard that one before. And here's the thing. It's technically true. A few years ago, we did a series on the five solas, which state that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. To be saved, to be a Christian, means that we are living with faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, a salvation that we recognize we do not earn and cannot be worthy of, and all the glory for our salvation belongs to God himself and not to us. That's how we're saved. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And nowhere in those solas, nowhere in that statement, does it mandate that we go to church. Nowhere does it say that we must fill a pew once a week or commit to membership or be part of a church community. So again, technically, the saying is true. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But even though it's true, it's totally, completely, scripturally Bad advice. Why do Christians avoid going to church? We have a pretty good idea as to why we don't have a lot of non-Christians in the pews, right? Like, we, we get that. But why do, why do Christians avoid going to church? The reality is that the answer to that question is going to be different for everyone. Some of us don't have a lot of church options, right? Like, maybe we live in a, a small town and only have one or two churches to choose from, and we struggle with the theological stance the pastor or the denomination takes. Some of us have been hurt by the church, haven't we? For a place that is supposed to be inclusive and loving and gracious, churches are full of broken, sinful people, right? And sometimes we can be hurt by the things that churches teach and, and the things that the people in the pews or the person in the pulpit says. And we tend to avoid places that have hurt us. And while those reasons can seemingly be justified, research that was done in 2018 found that the majority of people that identify as Christian don't go to church because they are practicing their faith in their own way. So what do we think of that? For most people that don't go to church but claim Christ as Lord and Savior, it isn't a lack of good options. It's not that there is a residual hurt that keeps them from attending church. It's not that they've relocated and just haven't found somewhere that they fit in yet. It's, it's not that they have struggled with the teacher's teaching. It's not even a crisis of faith as much as it is that they are practicing their faith in their own way. What do we think of that? Maybe the better question to ask is, what does God think of that? Does the Bible have anything to say about it? As I was working through that question this week, I was reminded 
of a word. It's, it's one of my favorite words in like my, my Christian, my theological, my pastoral vocabulary. Partially because of what it means, but mostly because of how fun it is to say. The word is adiaphora. Love, I love saying that word. Adiaphora, like it, yeah, it just feels nice. Anyone heard that word before? Do we, do we know what it means? Adiaphora is, uh, in, a, in a biblical context, means things that are not essential. The Bible's like clear on the essentials, right? You, you shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not kill. Honor your mother and father, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The, the scriptures don't give us much, much wiggle room there. It's, it's all pretty crystal clear. But there are totally things in Scripture that are, shall we say, a little hazy. There are certain practices, certain morals that are matters of indifference because they are neither commanded nor are they forbidden by God. We see one of these in the areas of Adiaphora in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about their stance on eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, this might be a bit of a weird example for us to wrap our, our minds around. This isn't something that we deal with every day. Not a lot of meat that's been sacrificed to idols on the menu at the local deli. But it was a big deal to the Corinthians. There were those that thought it was fine. Those idols, I mean, they're not real. They're not actually gods. They don't mean anything. What does it matter if we eat the meat from a bull that's been sacrificed to one of them? The, the meat's just going to go to waste. What's the harm? I would assume it was a little cheaper. Who doesn't like a good deal, right? The other side thought it was just morally not okay to consume that meat. They, they felt that it was corrupted because of the intent behind what had been done to it. So partaking in that meat just felt inappropriate to them. How, how could you eat something that had been offered to a false deity? God doesn't say that we should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. He, he doesn't say that, that you should eat it either. So it's Adiaphora. A popular piece of, of Adiaphora today, a debate that we could probably relate to a little better, would be something like tattoos, right? The Bible doesn't say to not get tattoos unless they're worshiping your ancestors or making sacrifices to the dead, but, but that's an entirely different conversation. The Bible also doesn't say to go and get them either, right? Now, now, because of what many tattoos look like and because of the long-standing stereotype of those who are getting them, they had a bad reputation in Christian circles, so it was frowned upon, even, even seen as sinful to get a tat. But it's really adiaphora. It could be and has often been argued by those who say you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, that church attendance, church membership is adiaphora. It's not essential. It's a matter of moral indifference, that we should all be able to just live our life of faith in our own way. And to those who respond that way, or to those who respond that way, I would encourage them to read the book of 1 Corinthians. And I would have them focus on chapter 10, verse 23, where the Apostle Paul writes to the church struggling with Adiaphora, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Now this verse has been abused. Paul is referencing the non-essentials here. He's not saying that as a Christian, he has the right to do anything, that anything is lawful for him. He's talking about the things that, that aren't clear. He's talking about adiaphora. 
And he says that while those things are permissible, lawful, it's okay for him to do them, not all of them are beneficial. Just because it's not illegal to eat three packages of Oreos in one sitting doesn't mean it's beneficial to do so. Just because some argue that finding a church home isn't something that God commands us to do, that we can be a Christian without attending church, that doesn't mean that it's beneficial for us to sleep in on Sundays. And furthermore, I would argue that Scripture itself argues that being part of a church family isn't actually adiaphora, though some of us may want to make it out to be that. God knows His people. He knows us. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows that we are each going to struggle. He knows that we're going to need to be continually reminded of His promises for us. He knows that alone we struggle to resist what it's easier to fight off in a group and through accountability. He knows that we don't all have the opportunity or ability to fellowship regularly with other believers. So it's, it's not listed as an essential, but Scripture is not silent on God's desire for His people to gather. There are quite a few places in the Bible that we can go to emphasize this, and we'll hit some of them this morning, but the passage that we're going to focus on for direction the most is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Now, Hebrews is a fantastic book. It's theologically rich. It's, it's nestled near the end of the New Testament, and we're not even 100% sure who the author is, which is kind of strange for like a book of the Bible. The author, however, is not as important as the content. And this book is content heavy. It's, for me, it's, it's up there with Romans. Like there's just some awesome stuff in the book of Hebrews. The passage that we'll be looking at this morning focuses on Christ. It gives good, solid advice and encouragement to the believer. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to follow along. There, there should be a Bible for you in the pew in front of you if you'd like that. But the words will also be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, this passage is fantastic. It starts by laying out the source of our hope, right? The, the foundation of our confidence, Jesus Christ, and his blood shed for us. And then it encourages us to draw near to God and bring or be and being cleansed of our guilty conscience through the forgiveness that, that God gives us. And as the text makes its way through these different promises that are real and true for the Christian, we come to verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, 
not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God, through the writer of Hebrews, encourages us to be an encouragement to each other, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. Kind of the hallmarks of Christianity, aren't they? Like when people think of Christians, these are supposed to be the first two things that come to mind, loving ourselves and our neighbors well, and doing the good things that we're supposed to do, helping the widow, the orphan, the refugee, supporting those that don't have what we have, giving out of our surplus, being kind, holding our tongues, praising the good that we see in others, practicing restraint, the list goes on and on of the good deeds that God desires his people to perform. He has painted in Scripture a a pretty clear picture of what his family, his body, his church is supposed to look and function like. So how are we doing with that? Do we look and act like the children God has called us to be? Do our churches look and act like the body that God has called us to be? Not as consistently as we'd like, right? We have our good days. We have our days that we feel like we're killing it in our Christian walk and in the life of our church. And then we have days when it falls apart. When we weren't able to keep the moral standard that we, that God, has set for us. When we gave into temptation and fell embarrassingly and shamefully short. And there are times when we, as a church body, we get caught up fighting over Adiaphora. And in our distraction, we forget that our church is not a museum, but a hospital. This isn't a place to come and glory at the great moral things that we have done for the kingdom, but a place to gather together recognizing that we are each broken and hurting in our own ways, and that all who enter through those doors and take seats in our pews are in need of the healing that only the gospel, only forgiveness, only Christ can bring. No, we are not always known for love and good deeds. And God knows this. He isn't surprised by our failings. He is intimately aware of how broken we are as people and his church. And that's that's why he sent Jesus. Because of our brokenness, because of our sinfulness, God couldn't have the relationship with us that he wanted to have. And he couldn't have just, or he could have just kicked us to the curb. He he could have just wiped the slate clean and and started over. But because of his great love for us, because he loves us so much, he, he didn't do that. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, to come and live amongst us. He sent Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, to live life in this broken world. And he did. Jesus left the perfection of heaven to come down here and to endure the hardships of life on earth. He felt hunger and thirst. He knew blisteringly hot days and and he knew frigid nights. He was mocked. He was rebuked. He was persecuted. He was made fun of. And yet, despite all of the temptation to to lash out, to assert his authority, to destroy those who would dare move against him. He endured it all. He even endured it when it led him to carrying a cross up a hill as he walked towards a death he did not deserve. And at the top of the hill of Golgotha, Jesus was nailed to the cross, a piece of iron through, through each hand and through his feet, and he was raised up and displayed in his naked shame. But it was not those nails that held him there. It was his love for us. 
For up that hill, Jesus carried not just the cursed tree upon which he was to die, but the sins of the world. Every time you and I have failed to be what God has called us to be, every time that the church has not looked like the bride of Christ we were meant to be, every, every sin that has ever been done and ever will be done was put upon Jesus. And there on the cross, the Bible tells us that Christ became sin for us. And there on the cross, the wrath of God, the righteous fury against the sin that offends and hurts him so much, was poured out not on us, but on Christ who bore our sin. And there on the cross, Jesus died in our place for our sin. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And we believe in him when we trust in him and we rest in the faith that he has given us. The dirty rags of our sin are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, the Bible tells us that we have put on Christ. So when God looks at those believe, those who believe, he, he doesn't see the dirty, rotten sinner. Instead, he sees Jesus, his beloved son. For through faith, our sins are no longer held against us. They have been taken from us as far as the east is from the west and we are considered righteous for we have been given Christ's righteousness this is the promise we have in Jesus this is the hope for mankind and we need to be reminded of that because none of us is perfect none of us is immune to the cravings of our sinful flesh our old nature the parts of us that we desire the parts of us that desire to spit on God's wishes and do what we want to do Man, it's hard to fight that battle alone. And so God, through the author of Hebrews, tells us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. We may think that going to church is adiaphora. I know that church and Sunday morning services and how we go about doing them aren't laid out in Scripture. The Bible gives us an outline for what prayer looks like, but we don't have an outline of a healthy church constitution. What we do see in many parts of Scripture is God's call, His, His desire for His people to gather together in worship for encouragement, for building up, and for keeping good doctrine. If we were to read farther, as, as Judah did this morning into 1 Corinthians, we would come to chapter 12 where God, through Paul, outlines that we, that the church, and by that I mean the, the church universal, the invisible church, all believers are the body of Christ. We each have a role to play. God has made us individuals with strengths and weaknesses, and man, we are called to use those strengths for the betterment of, of the whole body. And we're called to be part of the body so that our weaknesses can be supported by the strengths of others. This is how the body is intended to function. But that means that we need to function together, not solo. Not out doing our own thing, practicing our faith in our own way. What good is an eyeball sitting on a table? I understand that's a gross picture, but, but seriously, like what, what good is an eyeball sitting on a table looking around but without hands and feet to do something about the hurt that it's witnessing? What good is a hand gripping a hammer having no idea where the nails it should be pounding are located? None of us are all the parts of the body. Together we make the body of Christ and so we are intended. God has intended us to be together for the sake of his mission. And we aren't always going to agree on everything, right? Sometimes the back is like real itchy and the hand just, just can't find the spot. And man, that's annoying. I get it. And sometimes we, we break our foot and the whole body feels the pain of that. And we wish we didn't have to be part of feeling that pain. 
But church, we're, we're called to be the body and to support the parts that are hurting, even if their hurt spills into our hurt. We're called to be together, to gather together for the sake of good doctrine. Apollos was a young, passionate, well-articulated preacher that was a contemporary of Paul's. Sometimes I wonder how that worked out between the two of them. Apollos, this, this brilliant young guy that was just a great wordsmith, and Paul, who like struggles to put words together. He does well in his writing, but his preaching, he admits, man, this, he's bad. I mean, dude fell asleep in the window listening to Paul fell out and died like Paul was not an engaging speaker and so you've got these these two dynamics Apollos this brilliant gifted young man but though he was gifted he was also off doctrinally he hadn't grown up in the church and and much of his understanding came from his own personal study and it wasn't all correct he he had some flaws and Paul could have just kicked that dude out right for his heresy you could be like you're out man like you're gone I don't need to be competing with you in the first place, and your heresy is driving me nuts, so you're out. I'm not dealing with this anymore. But instead, he asked his dear friends, Aquila and Priscilla, to take Apollos in and to coach him, to teach him in good doctrine. I felt this myself just a year into my time here at Calvary. We were sitting downstairs in the adult Sunday school, and I was wrestling through a matter of our, our sinfulness and what, what God does with our sin, a, a verse that I had been working through. I was, I was leaning toward like interpreting a particular way and a, and a firm voice spoke from the corner gently rebuking me and reminding me in front of the whole class that God has taken our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Now I would like to think that I would have gotten there myself but it was a great picture to me of the church curbing bad doctrine. Sometimes it's nice when we aren't in the body when we're flying solo because we get to nurture our pet doctrines, right? None of us perfectly understand Scripture. No individual does and no denomination does. We understand it as best we can and, and we go from there. But when we take ourselves out of the body, when we, when we aren't meeting with fellow believers, we remove the ability to have our eyes on our blind spots. We need someone in our blind spots doctrinally so that like myself, like Apollos, we can have our mistakes, our, our bad doctrine curbed before it really catches on or is spread too far or becomes rooted. And as our passage tells us this morning, we are called to gather together for encouragement. We all need encouragement in our fight against sin. We need encouragement in the mission that God has called us to. We need support when we're hurting. We need to be reminded again and again of God's love and intention towards us, the promises that he has made to his people. That's what the church is supposed to be. That is what God has intended the body to be. I once heard a story about a pastor in a church who had a parishioner who stopped attending. The man still professed faith, still confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior, but just felt like he didn't need to be present with the congregation on Sundays anymore. One winter night, the pastor called upon the absent parishioner. They had a nice meal together, and then, because it was cold outside, they sat in front of the fireplace watching the flames dance. The parishioner braced himself, for he knew what was coming. He waited for the pastor to extol the virtues and the necessity of church attendance, to pressure even guilt him back into his pew. But instead, the pastor sat there in silence. Half an hour passed, and neither of them had said a word. 
And then the pastor took the tongs resting against the brick, and he pulled out a lone piece of coal and set it on the stone hearth. Slowly, the coal lost its heat. What had once been a fiery orange became a dull gray and then black. They both sat there looking at that black piece of coal as the minutes passed. And then the pastor picked up the tongs again, picked up the coal and set it amongst its brethren in the fire. Soon the coal was once again alight with color, being heated by the other coals and sharing the heat it had been given. The parishioner smiled and nodded, the message sinking in. He turned to the pastor and said, I'll see you on Sunday. Attending church is not adiaphora. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian may be technically true, but it's really bad advice. Being part of the body matters. It's God's desire for us. It's for his, our benefit. And it is for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's for the benefit of the mission of God that we might be blessed by the fire God has given us individually and that the mission as a whole might give off such heat that it warms the cold dark of our world. Calvary, we can't speak for other church bodies. But may the struggles that people have with, the church, with churches be a reminder of us of what and who God has called us to be. May we focus on the feet. We're, we're broken sinners, and so we will hurt people. And, but may we, when confronted with the hurt we have dealt, confess and repent and ask for forgiveness. May we have a commitment to community. May we see our church not as a museum, but as a hospital. May we welcome in those who are hurting, for truly we are all hurting. May we encourage each other and our body to be a place where we can spur each other on, towards love and good deeds. May God continue to use us in his mission. May he help us to love each other and our community well. May we stand on the stone. May this be a place where our foundation is set on the rock of God's word. May this be a place where we confront bad doctrine and trust each other to guard our blind spots. I love you guys. I'm so thankful that this is where God has called me, and I look forward to continuing to worship with you and to be your pastor for as long as God calls me to serve this broken yet beautiful congregation. Thank you for being the, God, being the body, God's church, for encouraging me when I need it and curbing me when I need it. God knows what he's doing, and that's why he gave us the church. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.